0: Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. Persistent and professional are the words that come to mind when I think about today's guest, Chuck Garcia. Chuck is a best-selling author, an executive coach, keynote speaker, and CEO of Climb Leadership International. He coaches executives on public speaking and leadership communication. Chuck is a 25-year veteran of Wall Street. He spent several of those years in leadership positions at Bloomberg, BlackRock, and Citadel. He's also adjunct associate professor at Columbia University, where he teaches leadership communication in the Foo Foundation Graduate School of Engineering and Applied Science. Not only does Chuck have this awesome pedigree, but it's his passion for helping others that most stands out to me. During our high-charge conversation, Chuck walks us through how a book by Tim Ferriss changed his life and motivated him to help transform the lives of others. He does this through teaching people how to implement passion and purpose to unblock themselves, let go of fear, and reach their true potential. We talk about how he bridges his experience as a mountaineer, the Ten Commandments of Great Communicators, the awesome program he's involved with at Mercy College, how Chuck helps people who are overwhelmed get over the quote-unquote hump, as well as the eye-opening study that Google did called Project Oxygen. Uh, And don't think for a minute we didn't discuss networking. In fact, we got into body language, communication skills, and how important they are as they relate to networking. All just really good stuff. You'll walk away from this conversation having learned some good tips and tricks in communication, The importance of having the right mindset as well as a lot to think about regarding your brand and the relationships that you develop in life chuck is a man that practices what he preaches specifically as it relates to his class on eq today's conversation was just such a perfect case in point you see i experienced a bunch of technical issues during this podcast but chuck never flinched and although the sound quality of the podcast might not be great you'll see how Chuck was unwavered and delivered just excellent content. Now that's emotional intelligence and class. Okay, enough of me rambling. Let's get you to my conversation with Chuck Garcia. So Tim Ferriss was a big influence in you. Tell me about that.
1: Indeed, and, and I, I don't know how it came to me, but it was at the issue of the 4-Hour week. and, it, and it, 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 it struck my eye. It's like the 4-Hour work week? What, what kind of concept could it be talking about? Yet it was a time in my life when I was a managing director at Citadel, a very large hedge fund, and yet something was gnawing at me. was contemplating, and one of the quotes that Tim had in the book was Steve Jobs' 2005 commencement address. And what Steve Jobs said in the address, he said, If you ask yourself, if this were the last day on earth, is what I'm about to do exactly what I want to be doing And when the answer is no, too many days in a row, Hmm. it's time for change. And that just kept annoying at me, and it was inside Tim's book. I had heard the address separately, but something about seeing it in Tim's package, because what Tim talked about in the book was the desire for time and mobility. You can have a lot of things in your life, but you think about the essence and how precious that time and mobility is either it hit me at the right time in my life or some, some divine intervention caused me to read the book at that time. It was through that book and the thinking that provoked in my mind that I resigned from the position. I immediately joined the faculty to teach college. I formed my LLC that I call Klein Leadership because what I got out of the book that I'm gonna devote my time and my mobility to waking up every day and going to work in the service of somebody else's success. Does that make sense?
0: (laughs) It's powerful. And how much time did that walk me through the amount of time from completing the book to quitting, joining, launching?
1: Five days. That's how (laughs) fast it was. I had been contemplating and I kept telling myself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to change it all. And yet, I kept finding reasons not to until I read the book. And when I read the book, I said, what am I waiting for? You know, you're in a big job, you're commuting to the city, you've been doing it for years, you're a subject matter expert in your field, and you're about to take a leap from this big organizations that have been behind you for years to not. Now you're on your own. And I was like, oh, wow, I've never done this. Oh my God, I could do this. And the book inspired me, it provoked me, it helped me to shape the fact that it's now.
0: And you're a pretty voracious reader.
1: Indeed I am. I read all the time. I don't think there's ever a time. I think part of it is driven by two things. One, I've spent an entire career on airplanes. And you have a lot of downtime. Also, I'm a mountaineer. I've climbed seven mountain expeditions. And there's something about being on the mountain and downtime during the mountain, it causes you to reflect in, in unexpected ways Because you're in an environment that helps you to think differently about the way you see the world. So when you're reading books and you're learning about other people's journeys, the insight that you gain from reading about these wonderful people and the common thread they have, most of the books that have had an impact on me, it's somebody who has written a book because they wake up every day in the service of someone else's success. It's the giving tree that I continually read about that helped me to form what I wanted to do when I started this life five years ago. And I'm grateful to Tim Ferriss and to so many of the other authors that have helped me to reshape my life and also to inspire me to write my own book, which I hoped in that helped others to recognize the importance of going to work every day in the service of someone else's success.
0: So that was only five years ago. And here we are today. You've got a book. You're on Mercy. You teach at Columbia. You're traveling around the world. Tell us about your platform and and what it's all about, what you're preaching.
1: Yeah, I'd be delighted. It was when, throughout my career, I was very grateful in that I spent a lot of time using something that I'm not sure I was naturally talented at, but I worked very hard to develop. And that's the ability to stand and deliver in front of a crowd, to figure out how to powerfully connect how to use communication skills to inspire, to influence, but most of all, because you get paid by a company that, that needs you to produce, how to persuade. You know, you're always selling something on Wall Street, and all my years at Bloomberg and at an investment management firm called BlackRock, you are there promoting your services. So it was in, in my own self and professional development by becoming a communicator that I somehow along the line figured out. There's a void to fill in that the need to help people to become better communicators in any business, I felt there was a gap waiting for me. Uh, There are a lot of people that do it, but I figured I could fill that gap. And part of that was helping me to understand how do I use my talents, and how do I align passion and purpose to be able to teach, to inspire, and to help others recognize that they have these talents in them, but oftentimes they are in fear of using them. I feel my platform is to help people unlock the fear so that the fears no longer are their limits, but also to help them to dream beyond those limits and to help them recognize the possibilities that can come with career and personal growth once we let go of those fears and embrace the fact that we can't do everything perfectly So it's an opportunity to understand what those talents are, that's talent assessment, and how to further develop those skills, that's talent development. So between assessment and development, where I spend most of my living, particularly in my client leadership, the name of my company, I do a tremendous amount of executive coaching exactly for that. Helping people who have been promoted on the strength of their technical competence to be able to improve their career prospects by becoming more powerful in compelling communication.
0: Do you see a consistency in terms of what people fear? And is that consistency amongst everybody, all different generations and all different areas of uh, all different types of work? Or is it consistency within executives that's similar versus, you know, maybe some students that are getting out of college?
1: No, believe it or not, it's very similar. Teach undergraduates average age 20, graduate students average age 28, executive life at gra- gra- uh, executive life average age 47. And what we find is there are many of them, and I think it's consistent, Adam, where they are the fears are consistent in that there are a few. Fear of failure, a number one. People are just terrified at the thought they'd try something and not be good at it. The millennial generation, fear of being judged. What happened, but somewhere along the line, people are just, oh, don't judge me. Uh, I tell them, I'm not your judge, I'm your coach. And they're, they're very different. But it's those fears of failure and being judged. And fear of failure, part of that is fear of making mistakes. People feel they need to be perfect. They need to be robotic. And what I tell them is that is far, the farthest thing from the human spirit that I can imagine. So believe it or not, I root a lot of my practice in helping people get comfortable with making mistakes. And part of being a mountaineer is you recognize that if you can't strive for progress, you strive for, for, for perfection. Just strive for progress a little bit every day, because you're never going to have a perfect day. Sometimes they happen, but there's always going to be obstacles in front of you. And if you let those obstacles overcome you, then you just ne- stop climbing your mountains.
0: Let's go into mountains for a second. I'm sorry to digress. I yeah, just it's it's right. obviously it's something that's really you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many people do it. You know, walk me through. You know, how did you get involved in in climbing mountains? And tell me about the experience you've had and and how you've been able to kind of Pull that into your curriculum.
1: Yeah, bad. well, I was a distance runner in my 20s and ran a couple of marathons and always stayed fit. It was through the stayed fit uh, about 15 years later. I wanted to be able to use that fitness for another means. Just by happenstance, I read a book called Into Thin Air, and I read the book, and it was the first book on mountaineering I'd ever ever read, and it was a book that recounted the 1996 Everest disaster. So here I was reading a book about a disaster, but instead of making me not want to climb, it inspired me to try something I hadn't done before. Since I was a runner and I grew up in a winter wonderland, I like winter sports, so what do I have to lose? So at the ripe young age of 41, I went up to a little town um, an hour, a couple hours from New York called New Paltz. I hired a guide from a place called EMS, Eastern Mountain Sports, and the guy guided me up and taught me how to climb a rock. And from there I learned the ropes. I learned about all of the technical equipment and I said, let me try this. I loved it. A Couple months later, I was on my first mountain, Mount Rainier in the Cascades Mountains and I summited that mountain having no idea what I was doing but I went along with great guides. A year later, I'm on Kilimanjaro. A year later, I'm in the Matterhorn. Then I climbed in the Andes and Alaska and others. It unleashed a beast in me that I didn't know I had but the most important part of why I loved it It was the best opportunity I could find to get out of my comfort zone to come to truly understand who I am and what I'm capable of doing. I use that mountain climbing metaphor in my practice, in my teaching. And what I learned about mountain climbing hit me when I came down from Kilimanjaro, that there are three things you need to climb a mountain. That's set a goal, take one step at a time, and you can't do it alone. Think, Adam, about the way we climb our career set a goal, one step at a time, can't do it alone. Is there in fact a difference between ascending a mountain and ascending a career?
0: Not at all. (laughs)
1: So I I bring that narrative in with me and I help people to recognize that everyone has the opportunity to climb their own mountains. In my case, I chose to get out of my comfort zone with the help of my family and the support that they, they lent to me in order to do this because I wanted to be able to take these lessons that I had in the classroom and take them outside of the classroom, first to discover it in myself, but now having a wonderful opportunity to bring that to my clients, to my students, to help people to discover their own mountains and to remove the fear of climbing them as hard as it may be, as uncomfortable as it may seem, how else can we truly know what we're capable of doing until we put it to some kind of test or some kind of way to help us to be able to test our own limits. Otherwise, how good do we we know we can be? But the most important part is I teach something called the law of reciprocity, that if you want to succeed on a mountain, if you want to succeed in your career, Give others, be kind and generous, and I see that's what you do, Adam. Be kind and generous to others, and you know what happens? They're kind and generous back to you. So if you get enough people with that mindset where they're very work hard, bring your talents to work every day, but never forget that it's you never get to those mountaintops alone. Help others, they help you. So it all kinds of blends. I don't know if there was any grand design to it, but God knows I am so fortunate to be able to bring that to life every day, and to bring it to my students on the hope that they will pay it forward to their students or whoever it is they decide to in
0: their lives. Any good stories that you have from people that you've taught? I mean, I know it's only been a few years, but uh, that have you know, maybe some of your students have have done well, and, and then they've given back. Yeah, you bet. I have one student. His name, and I'm going to mention him because uh, his name is Anthony
1: Sicaranza. He was, uh, grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, he had a 75 GPA in high school, and he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in an auto body shop because that was in his family. Then he said, all right, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take the New York City police exam. I'll just wait to pass the test. I'll become a policeman. That didn't happen. He didn't pass the exam. So he said, let me go to college. He goes to Western Community College and drops out. One thing led to another, and he failed. Well, let me just try going to college. He came to Mercy College, where I teach, which is a college not a lot of people know of. And, and something happened that, that he finally came to realize his potential. After graduating from Mercy, and I took him to climb with me to a place called Mount Marcy, where he began to see bringing that metaphor to life, and I'll get to the point quickly. This is a guy who thought he was gonna spend his life either in an auto body shop, or in, in, since he couldn't be a policeman, didn't know what else he was gonna do. Somehow or another, since Pepsi Cola, Pepsi the company is not far from Mercy College in Westchester County, He worked at Pepsi for a year only to have the phone ring. Somebody at a small little company in California called Google found him on LinkedIn. And they said, we are looking for someone with your expertise. He called me after he hung up the phone and he said, I can't believe someone from Google actually called me. A couple years ago, I was working in a body shop. Why would somebody from Google call me and I had breakfast with them the next morning and I smacked them upside the head? What's the matter with you? (laughs) I I can't believe I can't go to Google. Of course you could go to Google. And after I smacked them up a little more, I said, you deserve a seat at that table. And he didn't. He'd never been west of the Mississippi. Six months later, he's working at Google. Last night in my class, I used a Google video conference and I Googled him into my classroom. He is the perfect story of someone who wasn't sure what he was going to do with his life and whether it was through me or my colleagues or my friends he set a goal he took a step at a time and he didn't do it alone he had a team behind him and next thing you know he ends up in a company it's harder to work at google than admission to harvard university and so he climbed his mountain when he decided to remove the fear and he took that metaphor and he applied the metaphor to his life and now To see him on Google video conference yesterday, I was beaming with pride because this is a guy who climbed a mountain and he's got a lot of more mountains to climb, Yeah, but this is one mountain.
0: That's inspirational. And let's pull that back a little bit because you mentioned mercy. And the more that I keep learning about mercy, the more impressed I am and more shocked that more people don't know about this institution? Give them a plug. Give them a go for it. Tell them. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: I'm fortunate. Mercy is a, is a mid-sized institution. It's about 11,000 students, and it's located in a place called Ferry, New York. I didn't know the institution myself. and I only live 20 miles from it. But somehow or another, well, long story short, I was led to the dean, this brand-new dean of the School of Business, who was a former Merrill Lynch investment banker. Who had spent many years in the West Coast in the Silicon Valley, bringing high tech companies public, he somehow or another, after the crisis, Merrill Lynch pretty much ceased to exist until they were they were bought off by Bank of America. He was no longer there, and he decided, "Let, let me try something new." He became the dean of this small mid-sized institution, but he wanted to bring a different model. He had gotten his PhD and lived in a world of utter theory, and felt there was no pragmatism to the curriculum, and he wanted to start a. Uh, an educational model within a college that was utterly rooted in pragmatism, that taught the real-world skills, not as academics think it should be, but as executives who could come teach it and teach the students and get them ready for what that world would be like and to help them with their job outcomes. So his entire, and his name is Ed Weiss, and he deserves a plug because he's a wonderful human being and I love what he's done. He has hired executive faculty, guys like me, Guys on the faculty from Disney and Grey Advertising and IBM and all kinds of places, where we have aligned our passion and purpose, and we bring an incredible set of real-world skills to our students, who are now interning or working at Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, one right after another in Google. So it's not that we have ignored the academic model; we have made adjustments so that the students come in and they return, they, they deserve a return on their investment. So for many people who have gone to the Ivy League schools and were taught, uh, unfortunately, a liberal art that had no tie to job skills, many of them after financial crisis were working at Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. We said that can't happen. For the amount of money that college costs these days, they deserve that return. And the best way to do that get them so sufficiently skilled that the big companies want to hire them. And that's exactly what happened. And we're very proud of the program that we built, but we don't think that there's any genius in it. It's just being utterly rooted in doing what is practical and makes economic sense in this day and age.
0: I've been so impressed with some of the people, the speakers that you've brought in. I've been impressed with, I mean, I know some of the other faculty who's impressive. Um, and it just sounds like some of the stories in such a short period of time quickly putting themselves on the map, even just, you know, doing things like this, having this conversation, which is going to get them some some excellent press. And, and I, I hope it does, because it sounds like the college, especially it's one of the better bangs for your buck financially, you know, they deserve that.
1: And that's a good point. And when you speak to parents in particular who have so much at stake in this, they spend so much money helping their children with your college – They look at you in the eye with the expectation, can you help my child with job outcomes? Well, that's why we're here. And while there's a lot of things to teach, what they're going to remember is what is the outcome after those four years? And that's what they appreciate the most.
0: Chuck, you seem like a natural. Are you natural? No, I'd love to say I
1: was, and I'd love to take credit for I was born this way, but the reality, I wasn't. And I think if you look at anyone who has developed a subject matter expertise, whether it's communication, engineering, it doesn't matter. Michael Jordan made basketball look very easy, but he's the first one to admit that he was shorter than everybody else, he couldn't shoot a foul shot, and he worked at it. And you look at any of the greats, what you know is the success story that they are communicating, that underneath that, what underpins their story is of continual trial, error, failing, trying again, falling down, standing up. And I'd say in my world of communication, I'm self-taught. I never had anybody teach me these skills with one exception. I took a debate course in college and that had a major impact. That one course... And there were 10 people in that class. Nine of them were pre-law. They were all going on to Harvard Law and Georgetown Law. And it was me. And I took it because, oh, maybe I could improve my communication skills. I never forgot how important that was to me. But it also let me know how bad I was at it, because I was so blown away by these guys going to law school. That made and increased my sense of resolve that I better get really good at this. And I was at Bloomberg for many, many years in my career. And I was very fortunate that I wasn't good at it, but I guess somebody recognized I was better than everyone else. So you didn't have to be great. You just had to outrun the other guy. And I said, All right, so next thing I know I'm giving speeches, not because it was in my job description, but something needed to be done and I guess I was the guy that was gonna do it. And so I use that in spite of the fact that I really wasn't taught that, even though I knew how to debate, that I recognized how important that skill set became. But the most important thing I got out of it, it wasn't going to happen by accident. I had to continually be committed and focused on the need to do this. The reason I say that, Adam, is now that I teach it and I coach it, I see so many people throughout the course of their lives that have been pigeonholed. You're the engineer, you're the scientist, you're something, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that many even say when you try to help them, they said, well, it's not in my DNA. That's ridiculous. I'm no good at it. And of course you are. They've just come to believe that they shouldn't focus on this because that's not what they do. When in fact... Every human being has the capability of being an exceptional communicator. They just have to believe they're capable of doing it. And the world doesn't do us a lot of favors by keeping people in their one thing that they do. So I've worked on this. I've developed it. I teach it. And what I love about teaching it, there's an old expression, once taught, twice learned. So the more that I taught it, the more that I uncovered how much I don't know and how to adjust my ability to teach it. And that gave birth to writing my book called The Climb to the Top. There's a colon to it. It's Leadership and Communication Tactics to Take Your Career to New Heights. While it's a book about a communication model, how to connect and how to influence, it's really a book about how to uncover the best of yourself— how to remove the fear, which is why I use the mountain-climbing metaphor, how to help yourself recognize the world of endless possibilities if you could just take yourself out of the box that the world has put you in and try to develop the things that are extremely uncomfortable. The learning, Adam, as we know in our students and our clients, comes in the discomfort. Nobody ever learns anything in a comfortable place. Speaking in front of a crowd to 74% of the American population, they would rather die. Jerry Seinfeld said, number one fear in America is public speaking. Number two is death. That means at a funeral, and Jerry meant to be funny, at a funeral, 74% of the people would rather be in the casket than the one delivering the eulogy. It brings tremendous fear. And most of it, the development comes because people don't embrace those fears. They shy away from it and then 20 years later choke on their regrets that they never confronted it. What I hope we do, and I see you do it and and our friends, we help people to confront those fears because we live in a world where trying to be a perfect robot might be okay, but we also know that it is a formula for unhappiness and oftentimes depression because people often are put in this world and they are, are enslaved to unrealistic expectations and they live in a fear of being judged and not being perfect. Well, what I hope that we can do through these podcasts and through our teachings in our community is help them to understand that the fear is simply a symptom, and, and yet we need to treat the cause. And the cause is we need to understand that every individual might have a different cause as to why they're fearful, but we need to get to the heart of that anyway.
0: I talk about fear with my kids, and I tell them it's just an acronym right. for false expectations about reality. Indeed. Regarding what you've done, i.e. your book, your teachings, do you help people that are looking to reinvent themselves?
1: yeah it's interesting you phrase it that way. I never thought of it that way. The reason originally when I started teaching and coaching, I thought I'm going to help people to become better communicators. However, and I knew it when one of my clients said, I was standing in a hallway and and one of my clients said to a colleague, "Hey, I can't meet you, th- you with you right now. My life coach is waiting for me. He was referring to me. I never labeled myself that way and I never thought about it as a life coach, but what he had said to me, he said, just the fact that you're paying attention to the skill set that I need the most, it changed my life because it helped me to be a better communicator at work, with my spouse, with my children. Rarely did I think that you could integrate this personal and professional world, yet communication skills is the bridge that that fills the gap between both. So it it gave me pause to think about what do I do for a living? Well, what I state on my website is transform leaders into astonishing communicators. But the key word is transform. I didn't think of it that way, Adam, but what really came to be is I help people and I don't transform anything. I help people to transform themselves. And that's where the appreciation and the gratitude comes is just by focusing on being a better communicator, many have said to me that it has helped them to transform their lives. And I got to ask, does it get
0: any better than that? What are some of the communication skills that you work with people on? Is it public speaking? Is it how they interact with other people? Talk to me.
1: Yeah, in the book, when I was contemplating this, But as I was contemplating writing the book, I needed to put this skill set we're about to discuss into some kind of framework that people could understand. So I said, all right, I thought about this as, well, what could that framework be? Well, one of the things we do is I grew up in, in a Catholic Christian home, and we learned about something called the Ten Commandments. What I didn't like about the Ten Commandments, it told us the things not to do So I decided to flip that on its head and and I developed something called the 10 commandments of great communicators where I recommend a framework for what to do when you're communicating. So while it looks a little bit like a public speaking framework, how to stand on a stage and deliver, what it really is is a framework for how to help people understand the tactics of how we connect with people. So for instance, chapter one is called the primacy recency effect. In any given conversation, whether it's 30 seconds or three minutes, people tend to remember the first thing you said, and they tend to remember the last thing you said. Think about on the radio when you hear a song. You remember the opening line, and you remember how it closes. But we don't remember much in between, which means you got to make that opening and that close really big. If that's the one thing that's going to plant into their head, make it your first five seconds and your last five seconds. Another thing I talk about is... The elimination in this day and age of filler words, i.e. verbal crutches, for example. Well, you know, it's like, I mean, it's sort of kind of, well, you know, not really. I mean, uh, Uh. yeah, (laughs) right? Um's and uh's are the big one. And I once said somebody would end a speech with just like this. It's like, yeah. And I said, that's how you're going to end it? Like, Well, how else am I supposed to end it? I don't know what that means. It's like, yeah. Well, I was trying to underscore my point. You didn't underscore anything because I don't know what that means. So, part of these tactics, Adam, are helping them to further develop and just be conscious of tactics to help engage somebody, whether it's at a restaurant, whether it's in a big public speaking forum. But also part of this model is helping them to stop doing things that diminish the capacity of the power of communication. And in this day and age, and I see it in the millennial generation, it's all filler words. Oh, my goodness. So many of my students, they can't, they start sentences with the word so. And I could ask you, Adam, do you want a cheeseburger? So, I would like a cheeseburger and french fries. Well, if you think about so, was it important in the sentence? No. Did it have any meaning? No. Was there any reason it should have been in there? No. Correct. And then if I ask you a question and you, you, you respond with, I mean, and I could ask you, hey, how were the french fries? I mean, they were really good. Was I mean necessary? Hmm. Hmm. You think about the entire length of a conversation filled with, I mean, you know, um, uh, like, it's really distracting to the listener. So part of this then is helping them to eliminate the inefficiencies because we want people to listen to us. And so, which means we have to speak in such a way that they want to listen, but also we need to listen to others in such a way that they want to speak to us. So this model goes two ways because we have two ears and one mouth. God designed us to listen twice as much as we talk. So we use these this consciousness to help people to become better communicators.
0: Can you talk to me from a relationship standpoint about how you think about networking and any principles that you follow and or preach? It's not as if I teach any principles, although I certainly teach
1: at the Columbia Graduate School. I teach in the Graduate School of Engineering, and I teach three things. I teach Communicate with Impact. I teach something called executive presence. And in the executive presence, it's really about networking power, that how to help people either behave or what to do when you are at a networking event. And by already having the communication model, really simple things by being able to connect to people first non-verbally, what is your body language? When you're in that networking event, the first thing that people see, they do is see you. You haven't said a word and you've already struck an impression. You've struck a pose. So your body has spoken before your mouth even opens. And in 250 milliseconds, people are forming impressions about you. So the networking event, networking in LinkedIn, we all use that. It's all really good. But the real power of networking is the ability to get in front of somebody. And then what do you do when you get there? And so for the college students that attend a lot of networking events, we help them to understand how to behave, how to speak, how to connect, how to use those 10 commandments. And it's something as easy as the handshake and eye contact. These are the ultimate trust indicators in human beings. Think about when, when you meet somebody who didn't look you in the eye and somebody says, what was your impression of that individual? You kidding? He couldn't even look me in the eye. Well, that is a breach of trust. You gain trust through eye contact and you gain trust through handshaking. It's a custom that goes back for thousands of years. So when we shake, and we look each other in the eye. We are non-verbally making a connection before we've even said a word. So what I hope is we start with the non-verbal communication that leads right into, hey, it's great to meet you. Thank you for your time. I'm grateful for your assistance. And then you begin a conversation. And the conversation should be rooted in respect, and gratitude, and thank you for your time, and following up with an email, and a certain etiquette that we bring to networking, because networking isn't just about showing up. It's how well you are able to perform, so to speak, when you are networking, because that's what
0: people remember. It's so funny that you talk about body language. Are you familiar with the seven- Thirty-eight fifty-five 55 rule?
1: Uh, indeed, I am. Yeah. In fact, I think of any rule with body language, you can strip body language into different percentages. But what we know is that your nonverbal communication is 93% of your impact. And that is in simply the way you look and the tone of your voice.
0: Yeah. Just 7% words. 7%
1: words, that's correct, and that was a study done in the 1970s at UCLA. It had a profound impact in the way that I teach because so many people, particularly when they're ready to stand and deliver, they're in a rush, they stand up, they start talking immediately. I teach them something else at the risk of having radio silence on this podcast. Pause for a couple of seconds. Take your time. Look at the room. Establish eye contact with your audience, give them a little bit of time to catch up to what you're about to do, and then when you're speaking, pause, commas, exclamation points. We have in the written language all of these exclamation points, yet when we speak, we ignore them, including a comma, which is the ultimate pause that allows people to catch up and to absorb what you're saying to me. We don't do that either. We rifle right through everything as fast as we can. So there's so many things that the linguists have developed over the centuries that we just tend to ignore when we speak to people. What I hope that we do with my book and a climb to the top is we bring people back to the basics, to how people really communicated, to how they communicated with power and with precision and with impact. And so it's all tied
0: together. To be clear for the audience's edification, you aren't just working with kids. You're working with high-performing executives. Indeed, yeah. Many C-level types. I'm in
1: uh, one project where there's succession planning, where I'm helping the next CEO. There are many people who are candidates for the position. I have no outcome. I have no investment in the outcome. My job is to help these horses become faster horses, so to speak. So in spite of whatever their technical competence is, this company wants the next CEO to be a compelling communicator whether it's a lawyer, a marketing guy, an engineer, it doesn't matter to them, who is the one that is most likely to communicate to the shareholders, to the employees, to the Wall Street Journal, to the New York Times, to Bloomberg Television, who will be the most compelling communicator is the one who will get the job. Do you find that these executives embrace you
0: or do they fight you? Yes.
1: (laughs) Sometimes they, they originally, they're skeptical. Well, they they, they get it, they understand it, but they've never taken the time to commit to this aspect of their development. So sometimes these very smart, incredibly accomplished people actually have the fear. They mask the fear pretty well, but they're intimidated to get up and try something new because for 30 years they've been doing just fine. Well, my point is to almost to to have a little bit of de-teaching, to de-learn, so to speak, if that's such a word, help them to unteach all the bad habits or unlearn many of the bad habits that they formed that were able to get away with. Give
0: me an example.
1: Yeah, no problem. So I've got a guy, he's a chief marketing officer, and he feels that his connection to the audience is just go up there and tell them about what he did to the weekend and that people actually care. And my point to him is, well, they don't um, because you're not speaking about them. They care about their goals, their aspirations, and their fears. And if you look at the really great CEOs of the world who communicate powerfully, they're not talking about themselves. They may be talking about people in their company, but they're talking to their audience. They're talking about their audience's hopes and fears, because that's where you connect with people. And he, he just had to model backwards. And once he realized, oh, I guess they're listening to me, not because of my position. Well, they're listening to you because they have an expectation that you're going to have something to say that has meaning to them. And as long as you do that, you will have an audience for life.
0: Are there certain hurdles that they have to get over in order to have a breakthrough or some kind of tipping point with them?
1: Yeah. Generally those hurdles, everybody goes on videotape and generally the hardest critics or some, the hardest person to watch on a video is yourself. So often after I, I meet them initially and you put them up on videotape and then you review that tape with them, that's when you can bring the visual to life
0: and the aha moments occur. When you say video, you use video to help coach them on speaking or is this a medium you use to evaluate and coach him on that whole 738-55 that we talked about?
1: The whole thing, we're looking for executive presence, speaking, eye contact, how well they communicate, what is their message? Is their message somewhere in that one hour speech? And so we, we try to strip away all of the excess layers that have no particular impact on what they're trying to do. But also when we sit down and we review the videotape, they see their facial tics. They see their hand movements. These are all things that distract an audience and we haven't even gotten to the content. And then we listen to the message and they spend three minutes introducing something that should have taken three seconds. Well, the audience is lost. They've been disengaged and they're not coming back. So these are really good moments though. And those that really take to it, embrace that. I said, oh my God, okay. Hey, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help you get through this. And so once you can hit that point and they come to the realization that it's all possible, because when you start working on the tactics and you play the video two months later, they said, oh my God. What a difference between where I was and where I am. My point, yeah, you should see where you're going. Let's stay this, keep this for another couple of months.
0: Two months for coaching? You talk to anyone who's really made it, more often than not, there's someone behind them and their success. That's not even an arguable point, right? Agreed. But some people just are either hesitant or afraid of the commitment. I'm always telling people that there's a bigger risk in not having a coach. Uh, Just for those who may be listening or are trepidatious about moving forward, for whatever reason that may be, uh, most of the time it's usually money. But how long, Chuck, do you recommend engaging a coach for?
1: Yeah, generally six months to a year. Um, Some people, particularly in this world of instant gratification, believe, oh, just give me a couple pointers, work for me for a month and I'll be good. What we know about learning is that 90% of what you learn is forgotten in seven days, unless you recommit to it again. So I think the athletes are the best examples. What do athletes do? They never stop training. You see Lindsey Vonn in the Olympics. She's been at it for 11 years. She's been at it her whole adult life. She never stopped training, and she said that. Why is it, though, in the executive world we somehow think that we're exempt from continual training when the athletes never are? You know, you look at the great athletes. They'll all say how, how committed they are to the physical. Roger Federer at 36 is still winning US Opens. He's amazing. He is my hero. But nobody is washed up at 36 unless they think they are. And he's not. But as executives, why is it any different? Why aren't we continually develop ourselves? And the ones that really take to coaching have made an incredibly strong commitment to their continual self-development, not just a project that lasts two months. Tell me about the ones that fail. The ones that fail are usually lacking the intent. Adult learning is about intent. If you are intent on learning, you will improve. If you have made up your mind that I've learned everything and there's nobody on this planet that's going to help me, there's no amount of coaching that's going to help them because they're not helping themselves. It is a mindset. And we look at mindsets as either being fixed or growth. And if you have a fixed mindset because you're God's gift to the world— I can work with you, but probably we're just wasting each other's time.
0: Let's talk about mindset. This is something that's near and dear to me. It's something that I'm constantly preaching, especially when it comes to networking. You need to have a, quote unquote, serve first mentality, aka mindset. Uh, I guess this relates to whatever you do. You have to be in the right mindset for whatever it is that you're looking to achieve. To that point, Chuck, do you have any thoughts around getting into the right mindset Are there things that you do and or teach? Before I get to mindset,
1: I just want to talk about personal change. And generally, what we know about personal change is many at the executive level will only change when something they value is threatened. And it's unfortunate. To the really great athletes of the world or the great executives of the world, they're not changing because of threats. They're way ahead of that. They're changing because they recognize the the benefit of continually changing and adapting. That's what Darwin said about it's not goes to the, to the smartest, it goes to the most adaptable. But many executives that have fixed mindset, they have, they have not changed, and they have a mindset not to change because nothing's been threatened. Well, in 2008, what we saw in that economy is how many jobs were lost. Something they valued their career was threatened through no fault of their own or maybe through fault of their own. So what we hope with the mindset is that if you just wait around things either get better or they get worse. Plain and simple. Things don't stay the same. But if you don't improve... The
0: only constant is change.
1: The only constant is change. But if you don't commit to your own personal development, by the very force of nature, you will get worse. You form bad habits. You may not even be aware of them. So my point is that The ones who take responsibility for their own change and transformations recognize how beneficial it is because the whole world around us has adapted and been disrupted. Look at the major companies of the world in the last 10 years. They did not appear on that list in the year 2000 as a top 10 company. Facebook, Google, Amazon, etc. I can bet you half of the companies in the S&P 500 15 years from now will not be there because they haven't adapted. That, Adam, is individual. That model can be applied to the individuals who don't have a growth mindset, who said, I'm successful just the way I am. What the hell? I won't do anything different. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And then the shifting landscape around them begins and makes them realize, oh my God, I guess I
0: need to change. We hope it's never too late. Great point. Not to mention so well articulated. If we can now transition into networking, that would be a great segue because a lot of times people are told to network, but they're retroactive and they only do it when they come to a point in their life when they need something.
1: Well, you don't want to be networking when you're looking for a job. You want to be networking when you're in the best job possible.
0: 100%. And that's from a leverage standpoint. A time when you have the most value and can give the most. And that's really what true networking is about, giving. Right. Do you see a certain level of ineptitude in people's social skills or networking in general? And uh, if so, where do you think most of the people are dropping the ball? And what expert advice do you share with your students and clients?
1: Well, I think one thing we can probably agree on, although you and I haven't talked about this, is the power of LinkedIn and that they have become the de facto place that your resume is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So whether we like it or not, our resumes are made public all the time and anybody, anywhere in the world can see it. So immediately we have put a face and a bunch of words to describe ourselves. We've created our personal brand for the whole world to see. So whether we know it or not, we are networking in a very passive way because of that. But I think the important part is the particularly we need to resist the temptation that just because we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, and social media that that's good enough. It's not. In fact, I would say with networking, how grateful we are that we have these electronic tools available that you and I didn't have 20 years ago, but nothing can take the place of a human connection. This networking that we live in, the LinkedIn, the, the all the social media is only as good as our ability to connect with an individual and convince them why it is they should spend their time with us. What you and I know and you and I have discussed is that 80% of the jobs out there are in the hidden job market. They are not advertised. As strong as the networking electronically in this day and age is, networking doesn't get you a job. Convincing somebody that you are the right person does, and you don't convince somebody electronically. They want to look you in the eye, shake your hand, take you to a meal, have you meet other people. Because when you meet someone at a networking event, in less than one second, they are judging you on three things, likability technical competence, and trustworthiness. How is it that anybody could put those three pillars into less than a second? They do. So face up to it and recognize that whether you like it or not, as unfair as it may seem, that's the human spirit. So networking is a great thing. Being able to be connected to you via LinkedIn, absolutely wonderful. We're never far from anybody. Yet why do we seem so distant? Why do people struggle with it? Because we have forgotten to teach them the human condition. And I think if anything that I bring to the classroom into my executive training is shut all of that electronic stuff down, it is a means to an end. It is not going to get you the job. You're going to get the job by learning to do all of the things that we've just talked about. They are opposite sides of the same coin. You put them both together, you have great value. If you only have one or you have the other, you only have half the value of that coin and you are minimizing and diminishing your capacity.
0: <laughs> well put. Uh I'm actually just sitting here laughing with my jaw open. Uh you see it's funny because I, I had somebody reach out to me, I don't know if it was either this week or last week. Actually that doesn't really matter. But his question did. Um, Uh, He'd inquired about how important social skills are and how he hasn't gotten a job while meanwhile he had graduated at the top of his class. I don't recall the school, but I I believe it was Stanford, Vanderbilt, or one of the Ivies. But here he is with this in-demand technical skill set, yet continues to lose out on great jobs by what he calls losing out to the social butterflies of the world. (laughs) That's funny
1: to hear. Imagine that. Can can you be a brilliant engineer in social? Well, I would bet you your friend or this individual, he has told all his life you're the smartest guy in the room, but they forgot to tell the other half of it. You need to be really good at communicating to get the job because
0: there's a million other brilliant people who were the smartest guy in the room. Studies have shown that 85% Eighty-five percent of getting a job has nothing to do with the technical skills.
1: Oh, indeed, uh, I talk about it all the time. In fact, I, I would say, the how do you differentiate yourself? If you take an engineer from Stanford, Columbia, MIT, and Harvard, and you put them all in a room, how are you going to differentiate themselves? by the handshake, by the look in the eye, by speaking to you, by speaking about your hopes and your aspirations. I think particularly for the highly specialized jobs, that lends even more credence to the importance of communication because differentiating yourself by being a more brilliant engineer, they got that down. They're all equally brilliant. So who's going to climb the ladder and run that engineering firm when it's all done? Because what we know about those highly specialized fields, you're not going to be that that profession for your life. You're going to be promoted and you're going to have a shifting job expectation that's going to expect you to review your employees, to recruit others. You will become less and less of an engineer the higher you climb that corporate ladder.
0: Chuck, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that is just such an important point, if not the most important point you've made all day. And not to mention just so well put um, and missed on so many people colleges and classes in general so if you don't mind say it again
1: yeah it's unfortunate where we live in a world that we seem to promote that intelligence quotient is the only thing that matters yet if you put 50 intelligent people in a room and they all look alike and they have similar pedigrees which one are you going to have run your company well what we know is there are two other quotients that are equally important and that is emotional intelligence, which I teach, and that is the ability, uh, the adaptability quotient, the ability to adapt to change. So while many smart people um, start their careers as engineers, what happens as you ascend in your company, your employer has a different and a shifting expectation of what you will do with your career because the higher you go in the organization, the less you are relied on for your technical competency and the more you are relied on for your people skills because you start reviewing people, you start interviewing, you start recruiting, you start speaking at dinners, next thing you know what, you're talking to the press, then you're on you're on television and now you're no longer an engineer, you're talking about mission and core Values. I hear it all the times in the engineers that are running these great companies. Their communication skills are outstanding. What did they start? Mechanical engineer, chemical engineer. They either got lucky, or most of these guys have coaches. They have guys like me that help them to become better communicators. We just don't advertise it.
0: So I was listening to a podcast with the founder of 3Com, uh, Bob Metcalf, I believe was his name. If my memory serves me properly, Bob was an MIT engineer and a PhD in computer science. Anyhow, he was asked about how, uh, or I guess the most important skill set he could have when building his company. His answer, uh, I found astonishing, especially coming from his background. So what he said was the most important skill set that he learned when building the company was recruiting. It was all about finding the best people. Yeah. How do you like that? Yeah. Find the best people. uh, Which is something that he knew nothing about and or was taught. Uh, He admitted that it was challenging. He wasn't taking anything away from the technical side uh, or the importance of the technical skill set, but it was clearly important recruiting top people and surrounding yourself with the best and brightest. thought that was interesting.
1: Well, it's interesting. There's a great book it's written by the former head of HR at Google. His name is um, Laszlo Bach and, and, and Laszlo wrote a book, How Google Works. And what he talked about in the book is something called Project Oxygen. When they started Google, they had this notion that if we just hire the smartest engineers in the world, we'll do fine. So what they decided to do after many, many years, they decided to examine what are the most important traits of our most successful people. And they distilled it down to eight traits. The very last, the eighth trait was their technical competence. The first trait, communication. Number two, empathy and on and on and on. And it shocked Google. They said, oh my God, there's evidence. The people in the generally employees in these hard skills, they need to see evidence. They're scientists. That's how they respond to evidence. They don't want it this soft peddled. So Google said, okay, we'll present our brilliant engineers, the evidence. And here it is and hard skill number eight. They said, oh my God, that gave birth to how they decided to recruit, how they decided to continue to further develop people. Here it is, the the company that is one of those that is changing the world that has said to the world of the eight skills, engineering is number eight. That is not an excuse to lower the performance expectation of the engineers. Indeed, it is Additive. Instead, of, in in addition to being a great engineer, our professional development is now going to focus on communication skills, emotional intelligence, emotional adaptability, those kinds of things, because that's the world we live in now.
0: So, in the spirit of Google, I find that funny and ironic, as it reminds me of my friend Alan. Alan ascertained an opportunity with Google, uh, but on paper he wasn't your traditional quote-unquote Google hire. I'm not taking anything away from him. I mean, he's he's a sharp guy. He's got a physics degree from NYU and a good work history. And although he might not be a standout by Google standards, a pretty impressive guy nonetheless. Um, But he was an outlier for this role so much so that after he got the job, he went to the manager and he asked, "You know, why did you end up hiring me when you know I know that there you had so many other pickings um, at your disposal?" Well. Uh, The hiring manager uh, pulled him aside, and he said, Alan, do you know what they call uh, the guy that finishes his doctorate degree uh, or who graduates at the bottom of his class? He says, "Uh, nope. They say, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. We still call him dog.
1: I was waiting for that punchline. But
0: what you've got is likability, emotional intelligence, excellent communication skills, humility, and charisma. Everybody felt that you carried on with so much more upside than the other people that you were competing against. So it goes case in point, Chuck, to everything that you've been saying.
1: Yeah, and I have a student at Columbia. She's a chemical engineering major, and she's thinking about going to med school. And, and her point is, I need to learn this because if I become a physician, I'm going to spend a lot of my day delivering bad news as sad as it is, I want to know how to deliver that bad news. Because I grew up and she in, I'm paraphrasing, but she, she said she grew up in a world where doctors were delivering bad news in terribly insensitive ways. And they didn't mean to, and they were very competent and they were good doctors. But she said, I think we could, I could do better and I owe it to the patient. So there are those that recognize, yeah, be the great doctor. You're at the bottom of the class, you're still doctor. But look at the ones that people are going to gravitate to. I want the guy with the bedside manner that's simply going to make me feel better. If all things being equal, they're all great surgeons, the one who's going to come in to deliver the news, I know who I would like that to be.
0: Chuck, you've had quite a career between your uh, 25-plus years on Wall Street, not to mention the past five-plus years coaching standout executives and teaching Ivy League students. I'd have to presume that uh, you've come across some pretty impressive people.
1: Oh, indeed, I have. I am grateful. And, you know, I, we're all each other's teachers. I've learned from them. I'd like to think that I learned as much from them as they've learned from me. And I learned from my students and they learn from me. Yeah, the impressive people, especially many of them, they're, they are more the, they're, they're not movie stars. They're not famous, but they are incredibly successful. They don't want to be in the newspapers. You're never going to read about them. They go about their lives beautifully. They have husbands and wives and children. And they, most of them live this, the really impressive ones. They live very fulfilling lives. They're very balanced. They're really good at what they do. But they also recognize that there. many of them feel they are part of a higher cause, the cause for their company mission. They don't speak in terms of money or material. They speak in terms of the contribution to the mission, the contribution to the employees, the careers that we've created, the people that we have helped, the benefits that we give to their children. That is a common thread. And the, last, the, the most important thing, Adam, I think if I could see, it's the humility that they bring to their world. They're very humble. They're very smart. But that humility and sometimes vulnerability that they bring is an incredible way that they connect with other people. And I think so much of their success is driven by, if not more of that than the very thing that they started out with, which was technical competence.
0: So of these people that you've met and are in your Rolodex throughout the years, who's the most impressive person that you know That's in your phone right now and would pick up your call. Second, I'd like to know what it is about him or her that uh, you find so impressive.
1: The most impressive person is a gentleman who is now the CEO, he, he, he's in Canada, he's the CEO of the Toronto Stock Exchange, it's called the TMX Group, and that they, they, is the parent company for many of Canada's financial exchanges. He was my boss at Bloomberg, his name was Lou Eccleston, he was so impressive, I was so committed, he was the best communicator bar none I had ever been around, ever. And being my boss at Bloomberg, when I decided to write the book, he was without a doubt the first person I thought of, and I included his case study as chapter one in my book. If for no other reason, I wanted to feature him because he had such an enormous impact on me that I can only hope that I can have that kind of impact on others, because it was beyond how my own expectation of that impact, how do we give it to others? So he he was one of those utterly committed to becoming an exceptional communicator, which he is. I learned 90% of what I learned, I learned from him.
0: Wow. So uh, what's he passionate about?
1: He is passionate about life. He loves cooking and he is a phenomenal communicator. He's a finance guy, so he, he knows finance very well. He's just one of those guys that integrates the love of life, the the high performance expectation that he expects from himself as well as others the energy and the contagion that he's able to bring into a room to help others get on board, nobody was better at signaling the important things, not just what's, what's urgent, but what's important and, and, and the need to pay attention and to coalesce and to get on board, to unify the efforts and work together for a common cause. Nobody did it better than him.
0: So let me apologize for dominating this conversation and peppering you with so many questions. I'm really intrigued with everything you have to say and just haven't provided you an opportunity to ask me any questions. So anything in particular that you'd like to ask me?
1: Yeah. And thank you for the opportunity, Adam. I think what you're doing here is, is not a lot different than the law of reciprocity that I practice. It seems to me, and help me to understand if you would, what was the genesis of your desire to bring people onto this program, and what are you hoping to accomplish with that?
0: That's a great question, Chuck. Thanks for asking. Uh, Well, this program, uh, Conversation with Connors, was originally slated to just be boring old me. I guess uh, I was just going to do a bunch of soliloquies talking about what networking is, how to have a networking mindset, and uh, I guess just how to network in general. You see, as you've pretty much confirmed, most people, to no fault of their own, really just miss the boat when it comes to networking. You know, for one reason or another... It was either some, something that just went over their head or maybe just wasn't something they ever paid any kind of attention to. And to some degree, I don't blame them, uh, especially when there are people that I know that lay claim to being quote unquote super connectors
1: and they don't
0: even get it. So that's what I was going, that's what the show, I should say, was going to be about. Yeah, I guess probably boring, but through talking with some of the people in my network and trusted confidants and telling them what I planned on doing, they threw a twist. They said, you know some of the most interesting people out there. Uh, why don't you see if they would join your show? I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. Uh, not to mention it would give credibility to some of the stories that I've been telling people throughout the years. So uh, after reaching out to a bunch of friends uh, that I held in high regard that are highly successful and asking if they would share some of their stories about how important networking was in their, their journey, I realized I might be onto something.
1: And it seems to me you bring that human spirit. I mean, it's one thing to link in and have all these platforms in the modern world. But you have chosen a variety of subject matter experts in different fields. But it seems to me, validate or or challenge me, that the one common thread among all of them is very much some of the things that I described about the people that were successful
0: in my world. 100%. Yeah. I define success as one that lives a life by design, not by default. Right. So just because you're a CEO or some kind of wealthy multimillionaire, in my opinion, that doesn't make you successful. In fact, I know a bunch of these kinds of people that are downright miserable. I'm more focused on the person that's living the life that they want on as much of their terms as possible. So to answer your question, um, you know, number one, the goal of the show was first and foremost to be, you know, somewhat entertaining, got to capture people's attention. I have this uh, really unique and eclectic group of friends that I've accumulated throughout the years that aren't just unique, but interesting. Hopefully these guests capture my audience's attention as well as mine. Um, And number two, it's to show what success really is. For example, you can be a stay-at-home mom, and if that's what you want to do and you're able to raise good kids, then you really win at life and you're successful. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And if that's really what you want to do and you've done a good job, then kudos to you. You know, what about being an officer? Something you mentioned earlier, Chuck. One of my neighbors is an officer. Um, it's always been his passion to be a cop, and he made it happen, and he's damn good at it. doesn't matter what you want to be, but as long as you pursue your interests, uh, what a lot of people come to realize, or what I found at least typically uh, a bit later in life, the more as they ascend through the food chain into higher roles is the value, power, and impact of their network and relationships. Uh, it's a deep reflection point where they realize that they didn't get here on their own. Right,
1: right. Set a goal one step at a time, can't do it alone. And they all have that same common thread, right? And I appreciate you're doing, you're helping people along that road, can't do it alone, use this as a venue to help others recognize both the importance of marketing. And I hope with, with me, I can teach them some of the techniques, the personal techniques of what happens when you actually get to an event, a restaurant, whatever that is, what do you do now? Because it's only as good as your ability to make that connection. Not a superficial online connection, but a human connection.
0: Well, your teaching applies to everything, not just in the boardroom. Right. Everywhere, right. So it's a a model for any situation. Yeah. You just happen to pluck that model into where you are and you can apply it to the classroom or the boardroom. So, yeah, it's a great question. And I'm hoping that a lot of people have a bunch of takeaways. I have some really uh, interesting and varied guests on the show. Yet there are a lot of common threads that bind these people together. For example, I've often heard, you know, we as humans have two ears and one mouth. Uh, Probably not an accident. Uh, I hear about body language uh, often, Uh, reciprocity, giving. I mean, that could just go on and on but there's just a commonality amongst all of these successful people.
1: Well, I'm delighted that I can bring it out both in the college and the executive world, but you have a larger platform here where you can bring that out to the masses
0: because I think these messages need to be told time and time again. Yep. Now you do too. Here we are. Now let's get back to you before we wrap up. We're starting to run out of time. Can you tell us about your book and how someone would be able to get in touch with you? Oh, yeah. No, I'm
1: delighted. You know, I'm here to help. So the the name of the book, like in the typical climbing metaphor, is called A Climb to the Top, Leadership and Communication Tactics to Take Your Career to New Heights. It is available on Amazon, bn.com. My website is called chuckgarcia.com. And on there, I have several tabs that describe my coaching business, the speaking business, the book availability. I also have a communications self-assessment. There is a tab on there that allows somebody to click on an assessment, takes about 12 minutes to complete, and it answers a bunch of questions, multiple choice. Some of them include, tell me how do you feel about public speaking? Love it, hate it. You know, What do you feel like when you get up on a stage? I vomit. I do backflips. It's amazing what the answers are. One can take a self-assessment. When you hit the submit button, it comes to me. I read it and then I review it and it immediately puts me in a dialogue with the individual who just took it. I respond, I read every one of them. So that dialogue, and the reason I do that is I've had so many authors of books that I've read that had an impact on me. I wish there was a way to
0: communicate with them. That's one of my pet peeves. I can't begin to tell you how many authors throughout the years that I've reached out to and just never heard a peep.
1: And I've gotten nothing back. So I said, if I give somebody something to do that has value, a communication self-assessment, and then the author responds with, hey, I see what you're saying. If you go to chapter three, page 53, you will find this. And I did that because I wish someone had done it for me. And so I take the time to do it. It is my commitment. If somebody has, has taken the time to read the book, then, they have to, then I have time to follow up because I'm
0: grateful that they did that. Well, that's awesome, Chuck. I love that. I really appreciate you being on the show. You brought great content, superior energy, and insights that were just smack on. Uh, Not to mention, you fired me up to go out and uh, check out Mercy College. Uh, Candidly, I'm really impressed with what you've told me about the school and what it is that they're looking to do.
1: Well, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to bring you into the classroom. You're going to talk to our students who are highly engaged. I want you to tell them about what you're doing, and I want it to be the human side, the generosity, the, the, the human spirit. That message has come out. I can have tons of people, and I have bankers and all kinds of people come talk about the professions and say, no, nah, nah, we, we're good on that. We can read that in a book. Tell me what's not on your resume. That's the stuff we want to hear. Tell me how you built, how you worked through adversity. How did you face your challenges? I want to hear about the times that you fell down. Then you can tell us about when you stood up. That's what everybody needs to hear. We live in a world where we need to learn from our mistakes because the only mistake that we have in our lives is being too afraid to make one. Getting back to fear. Getting back to fear. So I welcome, first of all, thank you, Adam, for the opportunity to be able to to contribute to this program. I look forward to having you in the classroom, talking to our students. And for you and I collectively and all the people that we build into our world, let's just keep moving the dial on this subject. Thank
0: you very much. Great great being here. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If so, check out some of my others on conversationswithconnors.com. If you're someone looking to build a business, increase your sales, or make a career change, go to NetworkWise.com. There, you'll have access to a bunch of resources that can help you get started. Thanks again, make it a great day, and remember to always NetworkWise.